Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. Meet me this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. If you're sitting there today following along in your physical Bible, it's going to be toward the very end of that physical Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you're looking that up, just want to say a couple of things. A reminder that we're in uh, a season or a time, uh, one of the practice that we're currently in right now is the practice of confession. We want to be a church that doesn't just learn about or think about Jesus although those are very, very important things, right? We also want to be a church that practices the ways of Jesus. And so uh, we're always moving through a different practice. The one we're in right now is confession, where we're telling the truth to ourselves, to others, to God about who we are. And, and not just that, although that's such an important part of the practice, but remember we talked about confession as acknowledging with one another and this invitation to dream and to share our dreams with each other. And so my hope is that over the last couple of weeks, you've been able to do that. And that's been a rich experience as you tell the truth, as you dream together, as you speak life into each other's lives. Part of this reminder is we do have a resource for this practice. It's called Practice the Practice uh, for Confession available on the webpage and again through the app. Check that out if you haven't seen it yet. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're looking at verses 12 through 20 as we move now into part 2 of our counterculture conversation. The passage begins like this, I have the right to do anything. If there is a better uh, uh, phrase or statement to capture the spirit of our day and age, I don't know that I've ever read one. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, that can feel like a pretty sharp right turn, but we're going to get to that and, and talk more about that here in just a few moments. The body is not meant for se sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord. Here, referring to Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise us also. Do not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. This should ring some bells if, you're, if you've been tracking with us. If you were here for part one of the counterculture conversation, remember we talked about our union with Christ, Christ in us and us in Christ last week. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee then from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then here's where we're really going with this text, okay, these last two verses. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a, a passage that maybe feels a bit abrasive, maybe ruffles our, our feathers a bit, and yet it speaks uh, so clearly to us 2,000 years later, still remarkably countercultural in our current moment. Father, today and next week as we dig into uh, uh, this next part of the counterculture conversation and some things that are potentially heavy uh, or difficult for us, would you be gracious to us? Would you give us a lot of room to ask questions and to explore this together? Would you speak to us today, God? Help us to be receptive and attentive to your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we are in week two of this conversation called Counterculture. It is an extension of a conversation that we actually began a year ago, last fall. It's built on the premise that the early church, the ecclesia, which we've been learning about for the last weeks and months in our, our, our journey through the book of Acts, the early church grew from this weird little Jewish sect to an empire-ending global movement by being different by being different, by telling a different story. Rodney Stark, the theologian and sociologist, says it this way, the Roman Empire was stingy with their resources and promiscuous with their bodies. They gave nobody their money and everybody their body. And then along came the Christians, the little Jesuses. They gave practically no one their bodies, everybody their money. Last fall, we focused on the generous with resources part, how we can pursue God's dream for justice and shalom as a church family here in Davis. Now, this fall, we're focusing on the stingy with our bodies part of that. And we framed this last week in this way, by saying this, if God truly exists as community, as relationship, what the church has named for the last 2,000 years as Trinity, this perfectly loving, self-sacrificial community of three persons and one being, this uh, mysterious three-in-oneness. If this is who God is, then that truth has massive implications for us, for what it means to be human beings created in God's image. Among other things, it means that the core reality of our universe, when you peel back all the layers, the foundation underneath everything, is relationship. And it means that to be fully human, to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to offer us, is to be in relationship. The way we say it around here, to be in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. Now, as we dig deeper into this, that's the frame. As we get into the more practical manifestations of this, speaking about what it means to be stingy with our bodies, we're going to talk about two contentious stages of life, singleness and marriage. And I just have a confession right here. I don't love this dichotomy, uh, these you know, relationship status categories, whatever you want to call it, but there's so much confusion and hurt and misunderstanding around it. We wanted to name it and speak to this directly and talk about how we can be countercultural in these two things, singleness and marriage. Before we get into it, though, I want to just set a couple of ground rules, okay? So again, we're naming singleness and marriage because there is so much for, 
frustration and misunderstanding here. And I want to begin with a, an apology. And this is directed especially towards my single brothers and sisters watching and listening to this. People like me, pastors like me, church leaders like me, myself included, we have not been very helpful. We have often contributed to this weird dichotomy, this sort of dual citizenship where marriage is privileged and singleness is sort of uh, tolerated. We've asked dumb and unhelpful questions. We have not honored the gift that you are to the church. And for that I am sorry, and for that I apologize on behalf of myself and so many other leaders. Now, the other thing that needs to be said here is this. To talk about singleness and marriage is to talk about sexuality. We cannot talk about what it means to be a human being, to be relational, and just skip over or ignore our sexuality. Now, as a community, we love uh, digging into these uncomfortable topics, uh, speaking about them openly and authentically. But I do want to say the focus of our conversation is on how to live counterculturally as a single person, as a married person. This is not going to be a comprehensive study of human sexuality. Nor is this going to be one of those those conversations that's like a how-to guide, like here's three steps to a happy marriage and here's four ways to find the one. We're not going to do that kind of stuff. This is a conversation about discipleship about formation in the ways of Jesus. And so as with all of our Sunday conversations, we see this as a jumping off point, a first word, an invitation to go further, to explore this together in community. And we do have a bunch of resources that we are offering for this conversation. You can find that again on the webpage and the app. Check it out and then go grab one of those books or whatever podcast Talk about it with your friends and see where that goes. Now, the last thing I want to say is this. Uh, Particularly today, as we talk about singleness, I fully acknowledge and understand that hearing about this singleness, marriage, sex, celibacy from a straight male married pastor can feel a bit disingenuous. I get that. I want to acknowledge that here at the outset. But I also want to say this, okay? This is the first time we've really hit these particular topics head on since I've been here as your pastor. So over the last three years, we've talked a little bit about this as it's come up in different passages, but we haven't hit it head on quite like this. And so I feel like it is important for me to initiate the conversation and to speak to this as a pastor, as your pastor, and not as an expert in human sexuality at all. So we're uh, starting a conversation, speaking to this pastorally, and I want to make myself available to you if you'd like to further discuss either whatever comes up in our conversations or whatever we leave out. Steve at discoverydavis.org if you want to set up a meeting. All right, now to the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 ends like this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If you have some church background, there may, this might be a loaded verse for you. There may be some words here that have been used by other leaders or people in power to, to manipulate you or to get you to do something that you did not want to do. And once again, if that's been your experience, I am so sorry that you've been through that. But these words 
as loaded as they might feel, these words are countercultural, both to the context in which they were originally written and also to us here in the 21st century. So let's paint that picture a little bit. These words are written by a man named Paul. We've been getting to know Paul in our conversation in the book of Acts. We've seen that he has this crazy story, right? He's killing Christians. He's this like uh, uh, religious nut who, who wants to snuff out the church. And then Jesus meets him on a road in the middle of nowhere, this bright light that says, uh, where Jesus speaks and says, Paul, why are you doing this to me? Paul has this complete turnaround moment. He becomes a missionary, a church planner, has all these crazy experiences. And in the midst of all of this, he's writing letters to the churches that he helps to start. So what we have here today is a letter that Paul writes to a church in a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth is a very interesting place. It's a big city. Uh, it, has, uh, it was right by the water, so all these ships are coming in. People from all over the world. It's a crossroads city within the Roman Empire. Lots of different people, lots of different perspectives, lots of different religious practices. And in particular, you had the Temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, where many of the religious practices were very overtly sexual. You also had a city that had legalized prostitution. And so you have this church, this young church, new Christians, people coming out of all of these crazy uh, practices, this pluralistic society, trying to figure out how do we leave that behind and follow Jesus. And so this phrase, honor God with your bodies, comes out of that context. Paul's speaking to a group of people who have used their bodies to honor all kinds of other things. But now, no, you're following Jesus. Honor God with your body. So, words that are challenging and countercultural then and now. Countercultural now because they undermine a very common American narrative, a narrative that has roots both inside and outside the church. There's a very clear message in our society right now. And again, it comes at us in in very overt, but also very subversive ways that says you are not fully human unless you are having sex. To be a fully actualized person is to be sexually active. Outside of the church, this gets expressed in a bunch of different ways, but, but primarily through the idea that, no, actually your body is your own. And so you can do whatever you want with it as long as it is consensual. Inside the church, this gets expressed as this pressure to get married because it's within the boundary of marriage. that you, That's the only place that you can have sex, so you need to get going on that, get, get married quickly so that you can become a fully actualized person. But Scripture shows us over and over again that to be a human being is first and fo- foremost to see ourselves as creatures, as being created in the image of God, as being invited to participate, to be fully human, is to participate in God's community and in His creation. So the American claim that a well-lived life has romance and sex at its center is countered by the scriptural claim that a well-lived life has formation, discipleship in the way of Jesus at its center. Are you with me? 
So here's a very basic summary. To be countercultural and single is to be formed and shaped into the likeness of Jesus. And here's a spoiler alert. To be countercultural and married is the same thing. Formed and shaped into the likeness of Jesus. But hey, we're on the topic of singleness, so let's talk about this a little bit more. How can we be formed as disciples? How can we honor God with our bodies as single people? A couple of things that, that we, we want to say here. First, we embrace singleness as a formational sacrament. Now, it's a fancy, uh, a bunch of fancy words there, so hang with me here for a moment. But this is reflecting what Paul himself says in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. You see, there is a story that our lives are telling about what it means to follow Jesus. And this is true whether we're single or married. One of the most important questions you can ask is, what story is my life telling? What kind of story is my life telling? Now, there are unique ways that we can tell the Jesus story as married people and as single people. This is where the word sacrament comes into play. Sacrament is just a fancy word for sign. Christina Hitchcock, in her brilliant, brilliant book, The Significance of Singleness, speaks to this sacramental signage of singleness this way. She says, single Christians are important to the church, not because they have extra time and energy. And by the way, that is how it gets communicated a lot. Am I right? That, oh, hey, great, single people, you don't have anything else going on. Why don't you spend all of your time serving the church? No, 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 no. So much more than that. She says, much more significantly, they stand as a reminder and a picture. And where you hear that word picture, that's where you can drop in the word sacrament. They are a reminder, a sacrament, both to the church, and here's the countercultural part, to the worlds of three things. So a picture, a sign, a sacrament of three things, of the priority of the church, okay, that we need to be in community, the reality of the resurrection, right, that our hope is in the future and not in our current circumstances, and then the, the proper grounding of our trust, relationship with God. Single Christians, you are a gift to the church. Not because you have extra time, not because you have, don't have anything else going on in your life. It is because the formational story that you tell, the picture that you can paint with your life, about what it means to follow Jesus is very beautiful. The priority of the church, the reality of the resurrection, the proper grounding of our trust. Second thing, we embrace celibacy as a radical counter-cultural act of discipleship. A lot of conversation in our world right now about purity culture, about the ways in which it has heaped shame and guilt on people, especially on women. Now, keeping yourself pure, I just want to say this. Keeping yourself pure, whether you're single or married, that is a noble and good pursuit. Don't ever let anybody make you feel bad for pursuing that. But we live in a world where we make mistakes, where gnarly stuff happens to us, where we can be exposed to things without any malice or intent on our part. Purity is often held up as this very like idealized thing. It's often about fear and power and control and manipulation. And it's set up in such a way that if you make one mistake, it's over. You're ruined. 
no longer pure. Whereas celibacy has been seen in church tradition as a gift to be received. And to be celibate means to not engage in genital sexual activity. Celibacy is redemptive. It can be received at any time, no matter what your story is, no matter what you've done, no matter what has happened to you. It is a grace. One of my uh, hopes and prayers is that we see a movement towards celebrating celibacy as this radical countercultural decision to be formed by Jesus. Not a burden, not, not a thing to be endured, but a good gift. A grace. So let's drop purity shaming and champion celibacy as a good gift. Now, last thing is this. We embrace low stakes dating, no games, and heart guarding. Now, I said a few moments ago that we're not, the series is not about, you know, practical advice and five steps to this and all that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, there's a couple things that I do want to say to my single brothers and sisters. Now, to set this up, Paul says a funny thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 10, he says, I give you this command, not I, but the Lord. So here's something straight from God. Two verses later, he says, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. Now, that is an interesting thing in and of itself. Opens up a whole can of worms that we're not going to get into. But in the spirit of I, not the Lord, here's a couple of things that I would say to our single brothers and sisters. First of all, there is no dating advice in the Bible. Let's get that straight. All right. Biblical dating, if we want to go down that road, would involve arranged marriages. It would involve the trading of camels. It would involve hiding in the bushes. And if you're not sure what that means, go read Judges 21 when we're done here and think about what's going on in that story. But a a couple of guidelines would be this. Number one, low stakes dating. Big proponent of this. And this is especially for those of us who who grew up in the church. There's a lot of uh, pressure there's a lot of even existential angst that can come from getting to go, you know, go have coffee with me. Let's go get whatever. And then you're in this thing of like, oh, man, like, what does that mean? And what's going on here? And are they the one? And it's like all this intensity over just like, let's go get a simple cup of coffee. You should have the freedom to hang out with people, to get to know people without having some sort of cosmic meaning hanging over it. And by the way, this is not just me speaking to single people. Married people, we're the worst. Okay, we can really mess this up. Because what do we do? We see two people that we like starting to hang out. And it's like, oh my gosh, Joe and Jill, they're spending a lot of time together. And then we like corner one of them and we're like, you know, what's going on? I know you spend a lot of time together. You know, what's, what's up? No, let's take the pressure off of people. Married people, don't be weird about this. Low stakes dating. Now, I will say this, the dark side, if there is a dark side to low stakes dating, is that it can create an environment where people play games. And, you know, confession, we're in the practice of confession. I think I did this all too often when I was in this stage of life. But whether, uh, uh, when you get into that moment and you start to, you know, maybe string out two, three, four people at a time, not committing to anything, not telling people what's going on, don't do that kind of stuff, right? No games. Get to know people, be a good friend, see where it goes. And then the last part of this would be guard your heart, right? Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Now this is one of those verses that gets taken out of context and is used as dating advice 
When this verse has nothing to do with dating, the heart in the Bible is not the romantic concept we have today. Rather, it speaks to our deepest selves, our souls, our energies. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guard your heart is not, you know, don't fall in love too quickly. It's about giving your heart, mind, soul, strength to loving God, giving your energies and passions to the mission and kingdom of God, uh, devoting your heart to him, being wholehearted because everything else flows from that. Now, to close, and I invite you at this point to take your communion elements, whatever you have with you this morning, and I want you to hold them in your hands or, or, or place them in front of you. As we get ready to share this meal together, I want to end in another letter that the same guy, Paul, writes to a different young church trying to sort out a bunch of stuff about what it means to follow Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. All things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus reconciles all things. As we step into this conversation, about relationships, friendship, singleness, marriage. We're stepping into deep places, right? Our heart. And so the all kinds of stuff may get brought up here, right? This may bring up regret and shame and guilt, all things. This may bring up longings and desires and unmet expectations. Jesus reconciles all things. It may bring up names and faces, and pain, and trauma. Jesus reconciles all things. It may bring up hope, and expectation, and excitement, things you've been praying about coming to fruition. Jesus reconciles all things. I just want to end in that place, this reminder of the good news, that Jesus, our rabbi, who, by the way, never married, who came to give his life for us that we might have abundant life in him, Christ in us and us in Christ. This is what we celebrate and remember in this meal called communion. And so whatever this conversation brings up for you, would you give it over to God, allow him to reconcile all of it. And then when you're ready, take and eat the body and blood of Jesus. Well, once again, thank you for tuning in to the digital gathering this morning. Let's go out with these words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace, friends.